0: go ahead and grab your Bible. We are back in the book of Ezra, back in the book of Ezra. First, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, Ezra. If you get to Job or Psalms, you've gone way too far. Let me tell you where we've been in Ezra. Uh, in chapter one, and let me, let me say this every now and then somebody asked me uh, why we don't put the, uh, the text, the scripture up on the, up on the, Forward upon the projection. And um, we could do that, but we don't intentionally. Here's why. Uh, I want you to not only bring your Bible, I want you to see these texts in your Bible because you can't take this screen home with you, right? I mean, you could, but that'd be stealing and we don't don't want any of that. But uh, I want you to see it in your Word because here's the deal. If you don't have a Bible, let me just give you my my sermon before the sermon. If you don't have a Bible that you go to regularly, I mean, like, that's your go-to Bible. It's the one you carry. It's the one you keep with you. It's the one that goes on Sundays, etc. If you don't have that Bible, you need to get that one Bible. You can have as many as you want, but you need that one Bible. There are some times where um, uh, I can't remember where a passage is or where I saw it, etc., but I know it's kind of in this section of my Bible, and I know it's, like, in the top right-hand corner somewhere. You ever have that feeling? Right? It's because I'm somewhat familiar with, with that Bible. And so when you come to church, I want you to bring a Bible that you're used to and accustomed to. And when we go through a passage, I want you, uh, if, if that's your deal, to take notes in your Bible, highlight whatever your thing is. But I want later on down the road, when you're at home or when you're going through something and you're thinking, you know what, I remember us talking about something about this on Sunday morning. And you go back and it was somewhere in Ezra. That's all you can remember. You can go back and maybe find something, a principle, a nugget, a truth, etc., that's in your Bible. And so, that's why I don't put it up there. Because if I put it up there, we have the tendency not to bring our Bible, we'll just see it up there, and then that's it. I want you to have a sword that you carry with you. Amen? Make sense? Alright, so, if you have that, turn to Ezra, go back to chapter 1. Let me give you a little review of where we've been, because we've jumped around a little bit here as we're tracking through the book of Ezra. In chapter 1, we saw this. That God has been faithful to his people. That was, the, that was the main point. That was the singular point that we tried to uh, achieve is that God is faithful to his people. The nation of Israel had been taken away from their land. The temple had been destroyed. But God had, he had not only sent them out because of their sin. He had not only let them be taken into captivity because of their sinfulness. He, in his mercy, in his grace, gave them a promise even as he booted them out of their hometown even as the temple was destroyed by his order through evil men, even though he did that and allowed that, okay, he always tacked on this promise that I will bring you back. I will bring you back. And chapter 1 of Ezra is Ezra's record of God being faithful to his promise. God prompts a pagan king to say, those of you who are left, who call uh, Jerusalem home, go home. You have the freedom to go home. I give you the things that you need. I'll give you all the uh, protection you need to go home and rebuild the temple. And so God did that. And that was chapter 1. That was the theme of chapter 1, that God in his providence is faithful. No matter what it looks like on the outside, God is always faithful. Chapter 2 was about this, that there are those, and in chapter 2 we got a list, a short list of those who were in the nation of Israel who came back to do just what Cyrus said they could do. Okay, they came back to rebuild the temple. But we saw in this list that the list uh, overall was pretty short. It wasn't. It wasn't an expansive list. It was a small percentage of Jews who came back. And we talked about how it became that they were comfortable in their captivity, and we applied that to us in our in our sin, how we become comfortable in our worldliness and our materialism, and uh, how difficult sometimes it is, even when there's a route to salvation, even when there's a route to redemption i.e. the cross, Christ. Sometimes we're so comfortable in our captivity, we don't take it. We don't take it. And chapter 2 is a list of those who did, and we focused a little bit on those who did not. Chapter 3, uh, we took in two parts. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 3, they had to rebuild the altar. And we talked about orthodoxy. You remember this? We talked about how the nation of Israel was returning to orthodoxy. And I told you what orthodoxy really means. It's sort of like uh, the word we use for orthodontist, Right? An orthodontist straightens your teeth. The nation of Israel was trying to get things straight. And they realized that from the very outset, they could not build the temple because the temple is the the dwelling place of God. They really didn't need to build the temple first. What they needed to do was build the altar first because that was the first step to entering the presence of God. And we applied that to Christ, and we saw how Christ is the altar that brings us and gives us access into the presence of God. And then at the end of chapter 3 we spent a little bit of time talking about uh, as the foundation of the temple was laid. You remember this? That, that both young and old, some of those who saw the previous temple in all its glory, they wept. They wept because the new temple, the foundation, they could see that it wasn't going to be anywhere near what the new temple was or what the old temple was. They, they saw and it made them sad. Not only that, you've got to imagine that they were, they were somewhat disheartened because their sin, in part, took the nation out of their homeland and destroyed the temple. And now they're back and the temple's not as grand and they've got to feel a little bit of guilt that that's happened, right? And so you feel, uh, you, you feel in this one moment, this one moment what is supposed to be a celebrative moment, you feel hearts that are heavy. And then we saw that the new generation who never saw the previous temple, you see them come to worship, they come to the dedication of the foundation of the temple and they're celebrating. Their hands raised, smiles on their faces, uh, they're 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 excited At the same time, hearts are heavy, hearts are excited. And we applied that a little bit about how we come to worship and that not all of us come to worship with the same attitudes. Not all of us come to worship happy. Not all of us come downtrodden. But we all come. We all come. Um, Then we were in chapter 4, and here's where we've been for the last several weeks, except for last week, and Elder Radley shared with us out of Revelation. And uh, if you missed that, you'll want to listen to it online. He did a great job there. Uh, but before that, we were in Ezra 4. Ezra 4, you remember at the beginning, was this story where the nation of Israel, as they come back, they find that the inhabitants of the land have been worshiping uh, not only their God, but they've been worshiping a myriad of gods. Whatever God would bless them, essentially, they would worship. All right. And as they begin to rebuild the temple the inhabitants of the land come to the nation of Israel and say, hey, we're just like you. Why don't you let us help you build the temple? Because we've been worshiping your God even while you guys were gone. Now, they failed to mention in that that they had been worshiping not only Jehovah, but they've been worshiping any other God that they thought might be a blessing to them. And so they had this eclectic worship, if you will. And Israel recognized that. And they said, no, we can't, we can't mix that way. We, can't, we don't have the commonality that you think we have. So we saw that we can't let sin get into the church specifically by way of mixing with alternate religions. That was part of our application. And you know, Satan's first plan of attack is always to find that crack, isn't it? It's always to find that crack where he can come in and work from the inside out. And that was the danger for the nation of Israel, that these false religions, this error, would enter into the temple, and it wouldn't just be a place for the dwelling of Jehovah. It would be a place for the dwelling of all the other idols that these... People were worshiping. So Israel drew a line in the sand. The next week, we, uh, we felt that it was important to distinguish just where this line in the sand needed to be drawn, right? I mean, because you get the idea after you read Ezra chapter 4 at the beginning that uh, there may have been some separatist, uh, elitist, uh, Feelings between Israel and those who were inhabitants of the land while they were gone, right? I mean, if we left it at that, that would be it. And so we went, we went to the New Testament, and we talked a little bit about uh, where do we draw the line? I mean, do we just shut out as a church everyone else, everyone who's not a believer, everyone who is still in their sin, do we just, do we just shut them out? Well, we thought it was important to just distinguish where those lines are to be drawn, lest the world think we're separating ourselves because we're somehow better than them. And we wanted to show that while we, we must guard the integrity of the church, that doesn't at all mean doesn't it all mean that we who are forgiven of our sins are somehow better than those who are still yet in their sins, right? You see, that sort of attitude just it can't be a part of the church. It can't be a part of what God's doing here, certainly. And you remember that we talked about this, that we are not only guarding the glory of God as we guard the purity of the church. We're not only guarding the glory glory of God, we're not only guarding the reputation of the church by this separation from sin and error, these lines we draw in the sand, but we're guarding the purity of the message itself. We're guarding the purity of the message itself, and that is to the direct benefit of sinful humanity. You see the difference? We had to make this clear that we're not separating ourselves. We're not drawing these lines in the sands so that we can separate ourselves from sinful humanity. We guard the glory of God. We guard the purity of the church. We cannot let error infiltrate and corrupt what we're doing here. Right? And one of the main points we focused on is this is to the benefit of the lost world. Okay? The attitude that the world might gain when hearing us talk about these sort of things is that Is that we want to be separate from them, and that we're better than them, and that's not that's not the case. What we're saying is, listen, we're guarding the purity of this message. We're not going to let it mix with every other philosophy of man that is in the world. Why? Because this message is the one you need. It's your only hope. If we do love the world, what do we do? We have to guard the glory of God. We have to guard the reputation of the church. We have to guard the message itself. We cannot let it be corrupted, or it becomes of, of no use. To the lost world and we're not trying to disconnect from we're trying to protect the message for them you get that and we saw that we, we went to 2nd Corinthians 6 and that helped us to, to see the difference there we looked at the context of Paul's writings that he, he became all things to all men he certainly was not a separatist he guarded purity for the sake of the message for the sake of God's glory for the sake of the reputation of the church but also that the message would be clear it would never be tainted The next week, we went Old Testament. Remember this? The next week, we went Old Testament. We went to the book of Ezekiel to talk more in depth about uh, keeping error out of the temple. Right? Remember this imagery? Because this is exactly what they were doing in Ezra 4. They were trying to keep error out of the temple construction. In the book of Ezekiel, he told us this this sobering story. Right? He gave us this, this sobering vision of what had happened to the nation of Israel at one point in their history. God never allows sin to enter into his house, at least not and him remain. That was the point. Remember the vision of Ezekiel? That, that he saw the house of God. He saw that the people of God were allowing idolatry to enter in. And we saw this step-by-step progression in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 6, 7, and 8. You remember that? Where as sin entered in, it's like oil and water. It, it necessarily pushes... God out. He will not sit idly side by side error. And so you want to bring error into the temple, you want to bring error into the church. God says, that's fine, but you have to realize that my presence departs. As you bring it in, you push me out. We wrapped up that message going back to 2 Corinthians 6 where Paul talks about light can't be in agreement with darkness. There's no commonality between light and darkness, Satan and Christ, righteousness and unrighteousness. And you remember the last verse I showed you there in 2 Corinthians 6? He says, remember, in fact, that we are the temple of God. And we went there because I didn't want us to look at Ezekiel and say, man, Israel messed this thing up over and over and over. How would you let sin get into the house of God? How is it that you put these idols right up next to the throne room of God? How how do they do that? How do the elders let that happen? How does the church let that happen? How do they let that stuff mix? How do they let it come in and corrupt? Unless we look down our noses at the nation of Israel, we went to 2 Corinthians 6 and we realized, ah, we New Testament believers are the temple. And then I hope it became a flash of, uh, I hope it was obvious to you that, The whole application there just dumps on us from Ezekiel. And now we look inward and we say, okay, wait a second. Am I doing exactly what I'm shaking my head at for the nation of Israel? Am I I doing that? Hey, am I letting idolatry come in? And idolatry is putting anything, anything as priority before God. Is there anything coming into my life? Anything in my heart, in my home, in my family? Anything before my eyes? Anything in my hands? Anywhere that I'm walking? Is there, is there any way that I'm, that I'm mixing error, sin, into the temple? And there was a challenge at the end of that for us to, uh, to, be, to be the ones that Ezekiel said, cried out against the abominations that were going on. And number one, that we cry out against the sin that goes on in our own heart. In life. You know, this would have happened in Ezra 4. If the nation of Israel would have let these inhabitants bring all their other philosophies, all their other religions, help build the temple, you've got to know this is exactly what was going to happen. By the grace of God, the nation of Israel, they didn't allow it to happen. They drew a line in the sand. They guarded the holiness of Purity of the message, and therefore the message was saved for those who needed it. Well, let's go back to Ezra 4. Grab your Bible, go back to Ezra 4. We're going to finish up this chapter and even chapter 5 today, perhaps. Let me tell you what this next section of Ezra 4 is about. We're going to start in verse 4. Here's what it's about. Um, There are military tactics that are standard. Right, there are military tactics that are standard. Here's here's a phrase that I've always remembered. I don't know if it's from the Marines or where it's from. It may be a maybe a phrase from from all military, but it's that when when one military tactic does not work, the, the war cry, if you will, is adapt and overcome. Adapt and overcome. This next section is about that. It's about adapting and overcoming. Adapting. And overcoming. They do this in military, right? That when one philosophy, one tactic, one strategy doesn't work, we find another one, right? We find the one that works. We do this in business, in sales, right? That when one sales strategy doesn't work, when our business begins to falter, what do we do? We find a new way. We're not going to sit there and watch all of our profits go down the toilet. We're going to find a new way. Uh, where else do we do this? We do this in athletics, right? Uh, if you're a sports fan at all, Every good coach finds ways to adapt. Adapt and overcome. If this play isn't working, if this defense isn't working, if this game plan isn't being effective, what do we do? We change it. We go to another one. Our adversary, Satan, is the master of this. You know that? He is the master at this. If one way isn't working, he adapts. In hopes of overcoming. What was his first ploy? Through the inhabitants of the land? Well, let's let's join them. Let's see if we can we can infiltrate in and corrupt from the inside out. I mean, that's in some sense the most subtle, but it's gotta be the most effective, right? Not to be confrontational, but to get inside, work from the inside out, spread like as the New Testament says, like gangrene, like a cancerous cell, and eat from within. It's the most effective way. He always tries that first. And so the last few weeks we've been talking about this. And we have to guard this. We guard our temple. Not to let Satan get a foothold in our life through sin. Whether blatant or hidden. We can't let that happen. Because that cancer of sin eats from the inside out and it'll it'll eventually corrupt the whole body. You see, but that didn't work, did it? It didn't work. The nation of Israel... Uh, by the grace of God drew that line in the sand and said, no, we're not going to let that happen. That's exactly what got us into this mess before. We're going to do things God's way. We're going to be orthodox in this. We're going to build God's temple the way He said to build it. We're not going to let anyone else bring their false gods and their error in to set them up next to our one true God. And they drew that line. And you know what? You know what? Those who were against Israel, and you got to understand that Satan's kind of behind all this, right? You know what the next play was? In Satan's playbook, you know what the next tactic was? They said, well, I'll just just adapt. I'll adapt and I'll attempt to overcome in another way. That's what this next section is about. Let me show you a few verses. I'm not going to read them all, but I want you to see the basic storyline here. Because here's what happens. When Israel draws a line in the sand and they say, no, you're not going to work from the inside out. We're not going to be that dull to let you in the house of God. We know what happens. We know Ezekiel. We're not going to let that happen. Well, they say, okay. And their teeth come out. And the attacks now are not going to be so subtle. Instead of joining and corrupting, they're going to bring down the hammer on the nation of Israel. And does this happen? Does this happen to us? Does Satan choose this path as well? When we fight the good fight from within and we say, you're not getting in. You're not going to work from the inside out of this temple. Sometimes things just start to go wrong from the outside. Yeah, you better believe it. Does the world begin to attack from the outside when we won't let them work from the inside? When we won't align with error? When we won't align with with sin? When we won't just match up with every other false religion out there and just all get along? What happens? Well, the teeth come out. And the attacks rain down. We're going to adapt here. Look at verse 4. After the nation of Israel draws a line in the sand. Ezra 4 verse 4. Look at some of these. Then the people of the land. What did they do? They discouraged the people of Judah. Literally, that word discouraged is they weakened the hands. They weakened the hands of the people of Judah. And they frightened them. They brought fear into the life of these people. To the point where they kept them from building. Verse 5. They did something else. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their work all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They hired... You get this? They hired their own attorneys, if you will, to get in the business of the nation of Israel and find any way that they could shut this thing down. They couldn't do it from the inside out? Well... We're going to discourage them. We're going to frighten them. We're going to put the fear of what could happen if we rise up against them. We're going to hire counselors against them. Verse 6, now in the reign of, and your guess is as good as mine, okay? In the reign of that guy, it's literally Arta Shasta. That's the word. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Here's what they did. They frightened them. They threatened them. They hired counselors against them. They had people dig up all the political dirt that they could and send it by way of email, fax, whatever they got, to the king and say, L- Listen, look what's going on here. Jump over to uh, verse 11. This is the copy of the letter that they sent to the king. Your servants, king... See how they put themselves in the good light of the powers that be? This always happens, doesn't it? We are your servants, the men of the region beyond the river. And now, let it be known to the king. Like they're doing the king a favor here. You get the tone of this letter? Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious city. Accusations. The evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Let me just give you a little side here. I told you as we first started the book of Ezra that Ezra is uh, one of the most difficult chronological stories that we can tell in the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah are, in the Old Testament, technically one book. They were, they were one book uh, in the Jewish canon. And the chronology of all this, if you're following this, and some of you are saying, I don't even know what you're talking about, dude. That's okay. But for those of you who are saying... Daryl, this isn't, this isn't even the same time period. Let me just say this. Ezra is packing in here a lot of accounts of oppression upon the nation of Israel. And this, as we're talking about the walls, that's going to be a time back, uh, further ahead in Nehemiah. Here's what Ezra is doing. He's going to give you information on top of information, accusation on top of accusation. Because his point is, look how the adversary will adapt. Look how he will attack if you won't let him from the inside. Okay? So don't worry about the chronology. Get the point here. The point is, they were under heavy attack now. All right, go back here. Verse 12. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king. It's kind of a threat to the government here, a subtle threat, that if that city is rebuilt, and the walls are finished. They will not even pay tribute. They're not going to pay their taxes. You need to take notice of this, king. Don't you just love these kind, of, these kind of people right here? They're not going to pay tribute. They're not going to pay custom or toll. And it will damage the revenue of the kings. And that's one thing that a pagan king is not going to put up with, right? Accusations. Verse 14. Now, because we are in the service of the palace catch this because we're here to fully serve you king i mean only thing that we are concerned about is you because we're in the service of the palace and it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor therefore we have sent and informed the king so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers and here's what here's what we think you'll find you'll discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city, historically rebellious and damaging to kings and provinces. And that they have incited revolt. It's getting more serious here. They're not only, not only just not paying taxes, they're revolting, supposedly. They've incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore, the city was laid waste. That's why we got rid of them to begin with, King. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the providence beyond the river. What a subtle threat to the king there. It's a good thing he's got these people on his side. You see the difference? You see the the adaptation? You won't let us in? You're going to draw that line in the sand? You're going to guard the holiness of the temple? That's fine. That's fine. Ezra's first words in Ezra chapter 4. You remember this? Now when the enemies of Judah... And at the beginning of chapter 4, we don't really realize why they're enemies. Ezra, the storyteller, when he's writing the story, he gives us a glimpse and he says, look, these guys are enemies, so don't be surprised when Israel shuts the door on their help. And he completes the chapter by telling us, listen, this is why they're enemies. Their life shows it. Their sinfulness shows it. Their corruption shows it. Their accusations are against the nation. That's why I call them enemies. And so when you won't let them in, when you draw the line, when there's holiness in the temple, and when the the leaders of the temple stand for that purity, here's what we have to understand. Satan's not just going to go away. Those who are against, those who are against God's people. Don't just walk away. Let me give you, uh, let me give you five, five things we can learn from this story. Okay? You may want to write these down. Jot them in your book, in your Bible. Number one, and this is what we've been talking about. Number one, Satan won't stop. Okay? I hope this has become obvious to you. I hope this has uh, become obvious not just from this passage of Scripture, but by your experience as a believer. Right, This should be resonating with you right now. If you've been a believer for very long at all, you've got to understand, you've got to have found out already that Satan, the adversary, will not stop. Just because we shut one door on him, just because we hold the line in one area of our life, maybe we hold the line, we guard our personal purity, maybe we guard our personal purity in just one area even, you've got to know he's trying to slip in Another. And he'll hammer away at that. He'll work constantly at getting inside if he can and corrupting from the inside out. And if that's not working, you know what? He'll send some troops for a sneak attack maybe. He'll send some troops around to come from behind and attack. He'll catch us in a crossfire if he needs to. Now, let me say this. All the while, he's going to continue to try and slip in that front door. Don't, Don't forget that. When you think you've got this holiness of guarding your temple nailed down, you've got to believe that even though he's attacking maybe more blatantly, maybe things are going horribly wrong in your life right now, and you're saying, what in the world? Where is this coming from? And you feel like you've got this holiness thing down. You feel like you've got this purity thing down. Just about the time that you feel like you're doing okay there, and you begin to give your attention to another part of the wall where the adversary is attacking, don't forget, he's going he's to continue to, try and slip in and corrupt from the inside out. Remember, Satan will not stop. He's a master of adapting and overcoming. He's a crafty one, Scripture says. I remember my pastor growing up, and I never forgot this picture, this imagery of Satan. Maybe you can think about it this way. He says, Satan doesn't always come wearing a business suit. Satan doesn't always come wearing a business suit. I'm sorry, I messed it all up. Our, our picture of Satan is that he comes you know, with horns and he's red and his beady eyes, etc. And he's got his little pitchfork. That's our picture of how Satan comes. pastor would say he doesn't, always, he doesn't just come like that. Sometimes he does come in just a business suit. Maybe he comes dressed nicely. He comes dressed not how you would expect. Makes sense? You see, you see the difference? We think he's going to come and it's going to be obvious and blatant and we're going to be able to hold up our shield and fight him off. Sometimes he comes inconspicuously. All right, so he won't stop, number one. Number two, opposition is to be expected. Again, I hope this is obvious to you. I hope you know this. Let me just remind you, opposition for a Christian is to be expected. We are not immune to opposition. In fact, persecution in Scripture is promised to the church. Persecution is promised. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but there would, there are those who would have you believe that once you become a Christian, things are supposed to start going perfectly. Right? Your health, your finances, your career, uh, your friends, your family, uh, all that should all necessarily improve. And in fact, Scripture tells us that for a myriad of reasons, that's not the case. In fact, we're supposed to expect opposition. Number three. Let me give you a word of caution here. Although we're to expect opposition, um, how can I say this gently? Don't be an idiot and call it persecution because of your Christianity. Can I just be that direct right here? Because this happens all the time. Because we're Christians, uh, we... Label everything that happens bad to us as persecution. I'm being persecuted because of my Christianity. When the truth is, you've just been a jerk in the office. When the truth is, you've just been a jerk at home. When the truth is, your sin that you've let rise up again has gotten you into the situation you're in. Listen to this verse. First um, Peter 4.15 says, Make sure that none of you suffers. As a murderer, in the context of First Peter, let me tell you this. In the context of First Peter is, we're going to suffer, persecution is going to come, opposition is going to come. That's the context. But then he adds this caveat. And it is so needed. I'm glad it's in Scripture. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So don't, when you get yourself into a bad situation because of your sin, or you've just been a jerk, okay, in whatever part of your life, whatever relationship, don't just automatically wave the flag of persecution because I'm a Christian, okay? Just because you're being persecuted doesn't mean you're being persecuted for the right reasons. Always keep yourself in check right there. Number four. Number four, and this is related. If you aren't ever... If you aren't ever at odds with the world because of your Christianity, uh, something perhaps is wrong. Let me say that again. If you aren't ever at odds with this world, darkness, as it's categorized in Scripture, you're categorized as light. If you aren't ever at odds with this world because of your Christianity, again, I give you that remind you of that caveat, don't be a murderer, an evildoer, a troublesome meddler, Peter says. Not because of those things, alright? But if you aren't ever at odds with the world for your Christianity, something's wrong. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He tells a story uh, in his biography uh, of one time he was, uh, he was riding his horse late at night. He had been, he had been uh, doing kingdom work all day and he was riding his horse home late at night. And all of a sudden, it hit him—not literally, but it came to him. He, he realized that nobody, nobody, had been at odds with him all day long because of his Christianity. He realized he hadn't been persecuted in days. That's kind of an odd thought, isn't it? Listen, this this guy was kind of a, an odd Christian in the sense that he he thought about these things. Here's what he knew. He knew that opposition was to be expected. He knew that if he stood for the light in a world of darkness, that opposition necessarily will come. And when it's not coming, here's what he knew. I better check my life. Am I displaying the light or am I, am I covering it with a basket? Is, is my light hidden in some way that I'm not in direct opposition to the world because of my Christianity at some point? Here's what he did. He said, I got off my horse and I fell to my knees. And he said, I asked for God's forgiveness. That my life was not an offense to the darkness. Alright. Number five. This is the last one. Be careful not to build your understanding of God. Be careful not to build your understanding of God simply on your circumstances. It would have been very easy for the nation of Israel right here. For those few, those proud, those diligent souls who left everything that they had come to know as home in captivity, packed up and went back to a, to a desolate land, to a temple that had been destroyed at the word of a pagan king. For those men and women who were obedient to God as he directed them home. And they get there and they begin to rebuild. They start the altar. They lay the foundation. And then these inhabitants come and they say, Hey, let us help you. And they say no. And they, they stand on their orthodoxy and they, they draw a line in the sand and they shut out sin. They guard the holiness of the body, they guard the holiness of the temple. They're standing firm, right? They're doing all the right things, it seems. And now the hammer falls. And the inhabitants turn on them, the government gets involved everything starts to go horribly wrong. You've got to imagine that they had the tendency, there was some inkling inside of at least a few of them that wanted to look up and say, "What, what's going on? I thought we were supposed to be back here. I thought we were supposed to do this. I thought this was what we were supposed to do, God. I thought we were being obedient. See, you cannot allow your circumstances to always dictate your doctrine of God. That's the point, Okay? If anybody could have looked at God and said, God, what's going on? They should have done it, right? They should have done it. Scripture tells us that there's, there's a few reasons. There's many reasons why this kind of thing happens. Okay, Let me just give you a couple. Number one, because of the sin of man themselves. I mean, they should have expected this opposition just because of the sinfulness of the community. Right? And so you can't blame God because of the sinfulness of man. They're only doing what they do. We're sinners, we sin. That's one reason they should have expected it. Number two, uh, God's plans... Listen, and I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but God's plans often include both the black and white keys of the piano. It makes sense? You can't just play the, the big white keys on a piano and make beautiful music. Someone who knows how to play the piano well mixes in every now and then the black keys, those dull notes... make the music beautiful think about it this way if you look at the back of a of a beautiful tapestry it never looks as good as the front right the back of a tapestry never looks as beautiful as the front but if you flip that thing over you, you get a picture you get a beautiful image and you're like wow if you flip it over you see what went into making it and you got you got black thread you got gray thread you got all kinds of different threads and it's all a mess back there but you've got to know that that's kind of what goes into making the beauty of the picture overall. Scripture would have us believe and have us to know that the truth is that, that the bad and the good and the ugly all mix together as God is painting us on a portrait to display His glory. Does that make sense? There is a... Uh, there's a tree, an evergreen tree, in uh, Yellowstone Park, and uh, it's called the uh, it's called the lodgepole pine. And these trees uh, grow very high. They live a very, very long time. Uh, there's something unique about them. Their pine cones are said to remain on the tree for years and years and years and years. Okay, and that's odd for a pine tree. If you ever lived around pine trees, those things are falling off all the time, right? But the, uh, but the lodgepole pine, they stay on for years, literally. And when they do fall off, if they fall off before the tree falls down, uh, they still don't open up. Because when a pine cone falls, it opens up and it seeds. And I don't know exactly how it all works. But the pine cone has to open up, and that's how a new pine tree grows, right? But the lodgepole pine, that's not how it works. The, the pine cone falls, and it still never opens up. Here's what has to happen for a new lodgepole tree to grow. A fire has to come in the wilderness. A fire has to come and burn everything else down because those pine cones are built so that they only open up under extreme heat. And under extreme heat, a new tree is born. That's sort of how God works with us at times. That only under extreme heat, under extreme pressure, do we see the fruit. A new tree. If you were to go out and plant a new tree in your yard, a new tree, most landscapers will tell you, it shouldn't be tied down. You see how they plant trees and they, they put the ropes on it and things. I didn't know this. I planted a tree in my backyard. I put the ropes on it and things. My landscaper neighbor came over and he said, he said, look, you shouldn't. Technically, you shouldn't put the uh, the wires and the and the ropes and things on the trees. I'm like, why not? It's you know this big around. And it's going to fall over. We get all kinds of wind. And it's going to get blasted. He said, well, it may be good for a little while. He said, but after a couple weeks, you need to take those off. He said, because the tree has to learn how to stand on its own. The tree has to learn how to endure the harsh winds. And it's actually those harsh winds that cause the roots of the tree to run deep and grab hold. You get the application? You see where I'm going? Spurgeon said this, I dare say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any of us is health. With the exception of sickness, did you catch that? The greatest earthly blessing that God could ever give any one of us is health. Well, except that of sickness. I heard someone say one time after a long bout of illness and tragedy, tragedy in their family, as they came out of that illness and out of the tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy, and uh, we spoke about the hard things they had learned. He said this, I've learned things that I didn't even know I needed to learn. I've learned things I didn't even I didn't even know God wanted to teach me. And if the storms don't come, if the oppression doesn't come, then those lessons do not come. If you ever get an opportunity to sit with someone who's 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 up in their age, who's nearing the top end of their life, and you were to ask them, what are some of the most important lessons you've ever learned? What are some of the what are some of those, those pivotal moments in your life? As they look back, you've got to know that the majority of the time they're going to take you to points in their life, not that were are just the best and the least um, oppressive. They're going to take you to points in their life where evil had entered in, where the adversary had challenged them, where life had, had burdened them, where tragedy, tragedy had entered in. Those are the times... That, as looking looking back on life, they say, you know, that's that's where I really grew. That's the time that really sharpened my faith. Those are the times that really bonded our family. So here's the deal. Satan would love would love to work from the inside, and he will never stop working from the inside that line we draw, that wall we build to guard the holiness of the temple, our temple, we best always have someone on that wall. When we, when we blockade Him there, though, please expect that He's not going to stop. He's going to adapt and He's going to attempt to overcome by any means necessary by any means necessary. Let's pray.